Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this day broken, and yet grateful that by your grace you seek to make us whole through your Son. Lord, we know that the breaking is painful. Lord, sometimes without end. And so, Lord, we would ask this day that you hear our prayers, that you bear our words upon your own heart, or that we take confidence in knowing that we are heard and that you answer according to your will. Break your words small, fit for our consumption. In your name we pray this. Amen. Last week, we began diving into the book of Lamentations. As Jeremiah writes this deep lament, this guttural sorrow expressed over the destruction of Jerusalem and the casting out of God's people into exile. There was an individual crying out that he does on behalf of Israel, this collective voice that rises up. And this morning, it shifts a bit where we hear this singular voice speak as though Jerusalem herself cries out and laments. Last week, we talked about the imagery that Jeremiah gives over looking at the body that is now dead, that was once their holy city, as though they are standing over the coroner's table trying to assess the cause of death and yet knowing deep down exactly where it comes from. This morning as we pick up in chapter 1 and verse 12, is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire into my bones he made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned faint all the day long. We don't like being caught up in the guilt of our own offenses. We don't like stepping into a role of ownership when we know that whatever situation that has fallen upon us, that the discomfort that we now feel, the weight that we bear upon our shoulders is as a result of our own actions, or in some cases, inactions. See, the people of God had followed this pattern of 
faithfully following God and then everything was going well and then suddenly they didn't need him any longer and then they fall away and they kind of do their own thing and there's this ebb and flow throughout the history of Israel where they are constantly following and falling away and following and falling away. And throughout this entire narrative, God continues to call them back to himself to remind them of their identity, not just through the covenant that he cut with Abraham, but also through the image that they were crafted in, this imagio Dei, this image of God that they bear. And yet time and again, it's almost as though when they receive a perceivably better offer, they run in that direction and then neglect their faithfulness to God. They forsake the promises that they have made and they cease to be obedient and would rather be rebellious. And here, as Jeremiah laments through the voice of Jerusalem, there's even the sense that there was this attempt to run away in the opposite direction to avoid the consequences for these sins of idolatry, of neglect, of violence, and oppression. those offenses that ignore injustice around them, where Jerusalem almost seems to have fled from the punishment. We don't like bearing the fault for our sins. I've spoken of Dietrich Bonhoeffer frequently And in part because both as a man and as a pastor, he is an incredible image to look to in terms of what that transition between seeing what you are and what God has called you to be really looks like. As a young man, he grew up in a house where his parents were both Highly intelligent, his father was a well-known psychiatrist, and people would come to his home, and there were these collective minds that would gather around their table, and they would speak of great ideas and big things. And so it was somewhat surprising to the family when Dietrich actually decided that he was going to go into ministry and become a theologian and pastor rather than to pursue something more professional. And yet they were proud of what he had taken on. And as he goes through this formation and he ends up spending time in Barcelona serving a parish there in Spain, there is a strong sense that even though he proclaims this kingdom of God that comes to all people, that it first comes to the German people the people that had been faithful to the text, those that had read it and received it and had embraced it through the Reformation. 
And that when God speaks of how we love our neighbor, we love our German neighbor first, and then we love our neighbors around us. And so he reluctantly applies for this fellowship at the Union Seminary in New York and eventually reluctantly accepts this position. And as he enters into a setting that is completely foreign to him, rather than spend his time with other Germans or other German Lutherans, he spends most of his time at the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem. And in doing so, he ends up digging deep into what it really means to have this understanding of suffering, of exile, the way that the gospel was spoken differently in the context of Harlem than it was where he came from in Germany. So as the story goes, he and this Frenchman of friend of his, fellow theologian, they go and they see this movie together and as they are sitting there, they are watching these young Americans cheering for the German soldier that is about to be victorious as he is coming over and winning a battle against the French. And it strikes him as he and the Frenchmen are sitting there that these young Americans, they are embracing this character who was once their enemy. They are celebrating his brutality and the violence that he is committing, and yet they cease to see their role in actually perpetrating the same. And so they walk out and it begins to click that when God calls us to love our neighbor, it's not just to love our German neighbor, but to love all of our neighbors. And he speaks of how deeply it grieves him to see that his own people had begun to be led astray, that they could not see what was happening to their own nation, to their own people, to their own theology as they have begun to be twisted against an entire people. Not against a sin, not against something that was corrupt or something that was wrong, but simply because these people over here, they were different and we have to get rid of them. Jeremiah writes, my transgressions were bound into a yoke by his hand. They were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail and the Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. 
He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. And there is this deep sense of, we watched this thing happen, and we did nothing to stop it. We are complicit, and we are guilty, and their blood be upon our heads and our hands. This is our fault. See, God does this amazing thing where when he calls us to confess our sins, to lay bare those offenses which separate us from him, and in that vulnerability, we lay all of these things out there. We make it plain that, Lord, we do not deserve to be your people. We do not deserve your grace. And we certainly do not deserve to stand in your presence for eternity. And while God says, I forgive you, He doesn't immediately remove from us the consequences of those actions. If after being divorced, someone were to read the text where Jesus calls divorce a sin and then recognize that as such, and then come back and say, I repent, I have done a wrong here, and they might be forgiven of that sin, and yet their partner may have already gone on to marry someone else. And the consequence of that action is that that cannot be changed. Things don't go back to the way they were. They are forever different. When we do not lament and weep over the actions that we are complicit in, the hurt and the pain that we cause as individuals and collectively as a people, then in that deep guttural lament that rises up from the core of our identity as ones created in the image of God, and we confess and bear those sins before God, and we hear, you are forgiven. But we don't stay silently there. Zion stretches out her hand, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my sufferings. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. 
having reconciled the difference between what a neighbor meant and faith. The course of Bonhoeffer's ministry changes significantly because it goes from being, I'm going to serve the local parish and I'm going to build up the German church to now we've got to get the word out that there is something horribly wrong, that this is an injustice, and that these people are being oppressed innocently and we have an obligation to stand between them and their oppressor. So he would speak at conferences on peace and ecumenical councils where all faiths would gather and he would proclaim and plead that they would receive help from the nations. And yet when those cries for help fell on deaf ears or when it finally rose to a place that required more than words, rather than stay silent and Bonhoeffer going, I did everything I could. Instead, the man involves himself in a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler that eventually fails. And as he's taken captive as a political prisoner and he is interned in concentration camps, he sees an opportunity to continue to do ministry in those settings that these were broken people, whether they be Jewish or Christian, these broken people still needed to have hope proclaimed in the midst of desolation. So much so that in the last days of the war, right before his camp was to be liberated, he is killed and made a martyr. Not because he stood silently and watched it pass by, but rather because in his lament, he stood beside. Look, O oh Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been rebellious. And in the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. They heard my groaning, and yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble, and they are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all of their evil doing it come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all of my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is faint. See, God doesn't come in and say, you know what, people of Israel, we are going to just make this all go away. We're going to take away your pain. We're going to take away your suffering and we're going to make you the nation that I promise you to be. Instead, they continue on in their suffering, on in their exile, on in their oppression under foreign rulers. And then in the middle of all of that is a census is now called so that the Roman government can count how many people are actually in their control. Then in the middle of all of that, 
God does something amazing and he says, watch this. And he plants his son right in the very middle of the mess. Yeah, y'all, that hope that you've been waiting for, he's here. We're going to show you by bringing a star down and letting it sit right over his stable. We're going to have a whole choir of angels to proclaim his birth, and you still won't hear me. And yet God doesn't say, well, you know what? You didn't hear me, so sorry, too bad, so sad. Even to the thief on the cross as he hangs beside Jesus, he says, don't you understand as he calls out and rebukes the other thief? Don't you understand that we deserve to be here? But this guy, he doesn't. He's innocent. And then this man who has been unfaithful and disobedient and rebellious his entire life turns to Jesus and says, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And God doesn't go, you know what? You've got a violent past. You've robbed people of their belongings, maybe their hope. Maybe you have hurt people in other countless ways. You know, you're just not a good person. Sorry, no can do, man. Instead, he turns and says, today you will be with me in paradise. Not after you make amends or after you fix all the wrongs or after you decide you want to be a good person, but today, right now, when you draw your last breath, then you're going to stand beside me in paradise. I have heard your laments and I have heard your cries. But we suffer here justly We still give God all the glory now and forevermore. Amen.